Hello, listeners. I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by curator, writer, and recently retired co-founding director of Grant Gallery, Glenn Altine. They chat about the early days of starting an artist-run center, the curatorial direction of the Grant Gallery, as well as the Blue Cabin Floating Artist Residency. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. We are lucky to be visiting with Glenn Altine today. He was the longtime executive director of the Grunt Gallery, but has been done many, many things all over town. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. Of course, I always run into you at uh, Jean Cafe at uh, Maine, at the Maine and Kingsway corner. You have your regular crew of people, but I'll, I'll come back to that. So you recently retired from the Grunt Gallery after a, a long tenure there, building up that really important space in the city. But you you grew up in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, so can you tell us about the context in which you grew up and how you found yourself getting involved in the visual arts? Well, I I didn't start out being involved in the visual arts. I mean, my degree is in English, and most of my study was in theater. And for my early part of my career, I was like a playwright and a theater director. But then I just gradually morphed over into visual art because I just found it more interesting. I found theater kind of dull after a while. The thing about theater is, you know, if everything goes exactly as planned, you know exactly what's going to happen. Whereas in lots of visual arts programs and projects and all that stuff, there's always this element of surprise where you never really know where anything is going. So it's like it's a very different process. And I just enjoyed that more. When you arrived in Vancouver and were looking to set up an art space when the grunt first started, it was a particular moment in time in the city, particular moment in time around artist-run centers. So wondering if you can talk about kind of the early days of getting it set up and started. Well, there was never really a plan. I mean, in some ways, <laughs> I had moved here. I had moved here in 1980. And it was kind of an interesting situation because there was a bunch of us that we had lived in this university town in the East Coast. And there was a whole pile of us that moved to Vancouver at exactly the same time within a year of each other. So there was like probably 25 of us who had been friends on the East Coast and moved out here for different reasons. Like Kate Hammett Vaughn, there was other, Kempton Dexter, there was a whole bunch of us that worked in different parts of the arts and, you know, singing different stuff. So it was... uh, We kind of came as a whole contingent, so, and then got into seeing what was going on in Vancouver, which was kind of fascinating. Yeah, so there was an East Coast mafia angle. That's interesting. At the time that you were starting out, I guess that, you know, other institutions like the Orr Gallery were starting out around the same time or just after and others, but wondering if you can sort of, when you reflect back on the scene at the time with these types of spaces opening up, how do you think about that time now? I remember going to a bunch of different spaces, especially, you know, going to the unit pit when the unit pit was down across from the Hotel Europe on Powell Street and uh, and the earlier one that was over on Pender Street. You know, so the pit was this, you know, there was lots of concerts there. There was lots of exhibitions there. I also remember going to the Western Front to see exhibitions there. So it was uh, it was kind of getting to know a lot of that stuff here 
I mean, when I was in Nova Scotia, I remember going to the library lots of times and reading like the Village Voice or the Georgia Strait. So I wasn't completely green when I came out here. I had some idea of what was going on here and what the scene was like here. And it was interesting. Yeah. And I guess at some point getting set up as a nonprofit society, some government funding coming in at some point, I imagine there would have been some transition in time before that that happened. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of the process of starting out? Because I imagine there's probably a few years that was just pure sweat equity. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it was kind of crazy. I mean, it started out with me renting the space over on 6th of Main where the whip is. Okay. And so I'd rented it. I was renting it basically to live there. And I hadn't really kind of, there was no kind of idea of having, you know, I wasn't going to start a gallery or anything. I rented this storefront. I lived in the loft. And then a friend of mine came to town for the island, Campton, and he was a painter. And he said, oh, well, I should put up some of my paintings here. And that's kind of how it started. And then it kind of went from there. And then a bunch of us got together and had some meetings. And yeah, so that was kind of it. There was a, like maybe eight or 10 of us who started it. Mm-hmm. Now, there wasn't uh, a mandate at the grunt for necessarily showing Indigenous art or BIPOC artists, but certainly under your time at the gallery, you know, it certainly became known for its support of Indigenous artists, of new curators and other pieces. I'm wondering if you can talk about how that curatorial direction evolved at the grunt. I mean, early on, we were really interested in kind of outsider artists and artists that weren't fitting into the the scene in Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver, the scene at that point, which, you know, this is the the very beginning years of the Vancouver School. And so they're on everybody's lips, right? It's all about conceptual photography and theoretical-based art is very much the whole thing. And that's what, you know, the OR is doing and Art Speaker doing and the Front more or less is doing. So we were really kind of seeing ourselves as an alternative to that. And so there was a natural kind of move over it. And I think, you know, our curatorial thing, one of our big questions we always took to any show we were looking at taking in was, well, if we don't show this, will this get shown by somewhere else in Vancouver? Who else would show this? So to us, I mean, it was always a, the things that we tended to show were the stuff that the answer was nobody else is going to show this. We don't. Do. So that kind of became a thing. And then eventually we started working with different artists came around from the indigenous community, starting with like Mike McDonald, who was a videographer. And then, you know, we worked on this project with Public Dreams and Archer came along and he started working at Grunt. And so that was the whole thing. And with them, they brought a lot of Indigenous artists with them. You know, and, and it was a strange time for contemporary Indigenous art in Vancouver because, you know, there was a big traditional market. But I mean, essentially, if you were doing contemporary work in Vancouver, nobody wanted to show that if you were Indigenous. Like it was not, it was really hard to get a show. And so we started showing that work and then, you know, it just became more and more and more of it. Yeah. So going into the 90s, you remember some of the artists that you worked with during that period of time that, you know, are still making work or were kind of pushing the boundaries at that time? Because like you said, the Grunt was one of the few places that were showing their work. I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, several, a lot of artists have died. Mike McDonald and Ahasu and Ayana and, you know, a host of those. But, you know, I mean... uh, I mean, I think the first performance, Indigenous performance we did at Grunt was Margot Kane. And Margot worked with us a couple of times, but there was also, I think we did Marie Clement's first play. Was it in the First Nation series we did in uh, 1992? 
So there was a lot of artists. I mean, Evan Adams, there was different artists that were working with us at that point that it was very early on, yeah. As well as later with people like Rebecca Belmore and Dana Claxton and, you know, Lawrence Paul and all those others, you know. As you see the the Canada Council evolve over time in terms of how they're making changes to their funding, and in many ways, the way that you're programming in the grunt is the direction that funding is starting to move into the last just couple of years. And I'm wondering your sort of reflections as someone who ran a gallery for so long in terms of how the arts and culture funding has shifted from the three levels of government and how you kind of read into it now, having spent that time in all those entanglements, trying to work with government uh, cultural agencies? I mean, for us, I mean, I think that government agencies have been pushing it for a long time, and we knew that. But I mean, there was a slow uptake on the arts community in Canada around showing Indigenous art. I mean, we were showing it for maybe 15 or 20 years before anybody else was showing it. It was really crazy. And there was a whole period in this town if you were an Indigenous contemporary artist and you walked into any gallery in town, they would send you over to me because that would be the whole thing was the, oh, so-and-so sent me, so-and-so sent me, so-and-so sent me. And so there was nowhere else for these artists to show. So that became this part of the thing. But that changed about 10 years ago. And all of a sudden there was a big uptake by all the other galleries that had not shown very little, you know, up until then. And then now you see it's a it's a very pronounced difference, you know. I mean, they just announced the Governor General's Award, and five out of eight of the Governor General winners this year are Indigenous. So that's a real it's a real different place we're at now. Mm-hmm. The Grunt's been also known very much for giving space to young curators, putting up shows, and a place to experiment with work. And wondering if you can talk about some of the curators you had a chance to work with at the Grunt. Well, early on, I think we decided that besides just showing Indigenous artists was to kind of to give some voice to Indigenous curators. So the first person who ever was kind of an intern at Grunter started working as an Indigenous curator was Ianna Miracle. And she worked with us for like a bunch of years and Archer, too. But then later, you could get these grants for a year to hire somebody as an Indigenous curator. But they were kind of stupid grants. But we would get those. But then... When the year was up, we would keep the person on, which most other places didn't do. So we tended to kind of go into these longer training periods, like uh, Dana Warren, who's a curator. She started when she was still in art school on an internship in 1999. And then she came to work for us the next year and worked for us until 2007. So it was like these longer term. And then after that was Tanya Willard. And Tanya was working with us doing Brunt Magazine before she did an internship with us. So these people were working with us for four or five years in some cases. So it was, these were quite intense relationships. And, you know, a lot came out of them. Now, you also worked on the Blue Cabin residency in your last few years at the Grunt, helping to get that launched. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that is. Okay, that was a... I'm good friends with, uh, or was good friends with Al Neal. And Al was like a real old avant-garde, a musician in Vancouver, but also an artist and a writer. And he lived in the Blue Cabin. He had rented it. It was on the shores of Cates Park. And the only reason it had been saved, because that was one of the oldest squatters communities in Vancouver. It was the squatters community that Malcolm Lowry lived in when he went under the volcano. But all of that stuff had been burnt out in the 50s. 
But because this cabin had a relationship with the shipbuilding place next door, it kind of got saved when everything else got burnt out. And then Al Neal moved in. He rented it from the shipbuilding place, although they didn't own it uh, technically. And he lived there from like 1966 until, you know, they kicked him out of there in 2014. So it was a long-term tenure in this place. So once they kicked him out, there was just this idea that maybe we should save this. This is a lot of history in here. So we got the idea that we were going to save it. And so luckily, what had happened was that Polygon had bought the shipbuilding company and was going to start a thing there. And thank God it was Polygon. And then, of course, we appealed to Audain. And Audain, I mean, he paid to move that thing out for us, which was great. So it got moved to a chemical plant that was about four miles away. And it was this chemical plant where they made all kinds of noxious substances with salt. Like so sulfuric acids and all these different. Yeah. And so you couldn't go out. You had to have a hazard mask to actually go there and the whole thing. So they stored it for two years while we kind of figured out what the hell are we going to do. And in the process, we met with a conservator, a conservation person, Hal Kalman who's like a heritage planner. And he reached out to us. So he actually did a complete heritage plan for it. And so that was really the first step. Okay, now we know what we're going to do with this thing. But we still didn't know what the hell we were doing with it. When the time he finished, we realized that it would be, you know, we knew we wanted to do some kind of residency. But the report that they did, they said that you should try to do as little as we could. And this cabin, you know, didn't have water. It didn't have electricity. So it wouldn't have been a very good residency at that point. So then came the idea of, oh, well, we'll put it with a small house on a float and it'll become this. Because originally the cabin had been on the water. You know, it was moved over to the North Shore. We know this in 1932. And then when we started to do the remediation on it, the artist Jeremy Borsos and his wife, Seuss, essentially took the whole cabin apart inside and out. They took it apart and rebuilt it piece by piece. And under the floorboards, they found like posters from 1927. So we remember the date when the cabin was built by these posters. And it was like, you know, the year that the Orpheum opened. So these posters were to all kinds of events. And what they would do was take these posters. They were big posters that they would put on the front of the streetcars. If you sometimes see the streetcars, they have these posters and they're made of thick guard. And so I guess because Vancouver was the end of the vaudeville circuit, there was lots of extra posters. Perry, the poster man, was telling me that this is quite natural in Kitsilano is they would use them between the joists and the floorboards so the floor didn't squeak because they were, you know, about a quarter of an inch and it were just thick enough to do that. So this is what they were doing there. But there were like 40 of them. So it was gave us the ability to date it. So through the process, we just kept going and going and going. And then it opened in the fall of 2019. And so... Where is it uh, located now? All of this was done in the North Shore. We moved it from the chemical plant to Maplewood Farms because the city offered us that space free. So we were actually allowed to move it into a sheep's pasture in Maplewood Farms. So we were there with the sheep while we fixed it up. And then eventually we hired Vancouver pile drivers to build the platform, which is a concrete covered styrofoam. And we were able to build there too in their dry dock. So it moved. And then in the June of 2019, it moved into False Creek and it was at the Plaza of Nations where it's in there now for going on. uh, And it's going to move from there in June of this year. 
And we're just in the process now of finding a place on the North Shore for it. Oh, nice. And how long are the residencies when they happen there? They are usually about six weeks. So it could be six to eight weeks that we have done shorter ones. But I mean, we just started our new residency. I mean, it's been closed most of 2020. The last resident was in residency about a year ago. But a new resident just started, Pippa, and uh, she is working on this piece that was of Al Neal's piano from the cabin. And she's created this big piece over it. And that's at the cabin right now. And now, where I always run into you at the corner of a main and Kingsway, how long have you and your crew been meeting there? I, I mean, I'm just like an odd fly on the wall. I make cameo appearances, but you guys are like the regulars. So, <laughs> well, it was always Lawrence and I. I mean, I've known Lawrence for 30 years. And, you know, we've always kind of gotten together for coffee in the morning. So, kind of the only time I see him. And so, when Gene opened, we kind of moved over there. So, I don't know. It's, it's got to be 15 years ago or 18 years ago. But before that, we were at a coffee shop up at the corner. So it was kind of like we've been, you know, at that part of Main Street on that block of Main Street for 25 years anyway. And then other people join us because Ahmed, who's a costume designer, he's by every day on his way to work. And there's a whole bunch of other crew that just come through. And it's just this never ending thing of, of coffee clutches. I mean, it was good. We, we really got a lot of us through the pandemic because we just met right through the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. amazing how much uh, just sitting there, how much art and political gossip slash we've traded notes on which blood thinners we're on, you know? It's from yeah, 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 yeah. timely to the banal. It all gets covered off there on the street. So, Well, there's a bunch of people that drink coffee there, fix old cars. So the conversation could go from art to old cars, back to art and... You know, anyway, it's crazy. Yep. So I saw a couple of uh, photos of your last day at the Grunt Gallery, which was, you know, during the pandemic. But wondering if you could share that story a, a little bit, because I just saw the visual side of it. Oh, yeah, no, we, well, it was, it was so strange, you know, to be retired during pandemic. So uh, we didn't know what to do. And in the end, they decided they would just have a, a thing. One of the last projects that I worked on besides the Blue Cabin was a, Mount Pleasant Community Art Screen up at uh, Kingsway and Broadway. And so they decided they would just have something in the parking lot there that was socially distanced to say goodbye. But then I guess before I got there, they got kicked out of the parking lot. So we were on the street by the time I got there, right across from the screen. And they were playing this program for the screen for my retirement. It was quite fun. <laughs> so what are you up to now? Because, I mean, you don't seem like the retirement type. You might be not working at the Grunt anymore, but what are you up to these days? Uh, what am I up to? Well, I'm still working on the Blue Cabin. Now, I seem to have gotten left Grunt, but the cabin yeah, is Get that hammer me. in your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So I'm at this point, I'm trying to figure out where we're moving it in the North Shore and then do some fundraising around it because the COVID has kind of really left us for a, a pickle. What else am I doing? We're working with this intern from SFU around putting together some of my writing archive like a chronology and an archive of my writing, because I kind of wrote for the last 35 years, but I didn't pay much attention. Usually I wrote if somebody paid me to write or if somebody said they would publish it, I would write something. So I never actually collected all those things. So now we're trying to put that together and see what that looks like. I'm still working with Dan Pond, the archivistic grunt in the archive, where he's going through and asking me questions and recording things about different shows. So a bunch of different projects, you know. You got a Governor General's Award. You didn't even mention that. Oh, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah. In 2018. So 
Yeah, I was one of the few people to get one from that governor general. <laughs> so <it's good. laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a, a short window of time. You could have picked one. Yeah, up yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I know that's I mean, that's mostly keeping me busy. But I mean, COVID's kind of thrown it for a loop because it's hard to get out, you know, to do too much in this situation. On the other hand, I mean, I'm fine to not do too much for the time being. It's fine. You know, I don't feel like I need to push myself. Totally. And if uh, there's some government arts and culture funding types listening to this, what would be your message to them in terms of coming out of the pandemic, how arts and culture funding ought to be kind of looked at as we go forward in the next few years? Well, I was, I kind of got reading this guy named Hans Abing, who was a, a Dutch artist and a, an economist. And he actually wrote a book called Why Are Artists Poor? And it's quite interesting. And his recommendation around this, which I think is sane, is not to put more money into arts councils and arts awards. It's to put money into employment schemes for artists, in terms of healthcare schemes for artists, things that are available to all artists and are not awarded out by an award system. And I think it's a really sound place to be going to. Because, you know, as they, the government puts more money into the Canada Council, more people apply for Canada Council and actually less people make get money than we're getting it before. So it's a real problem when you're trying to change the economy of the arts to try to do it through arts awards like, you know, the Canada Council or the BC Arts Council. So I think it's just like employment schemes that allow artists to get unemployment insurance, that allow artists to get health care. All those things need to be made available, you know, resale rights, all those things. Now, you know, at the time that artist-run centers were starting out here in the 80s, the way you described the story about just, you know, renting an apartment and starting to do things, we have, you know, three different art schools here, probably more than that, in fact, and a lot of students graduating with a load of debt and trying to find a place to have their show, opening up their own spaces. What would be your advice to students coming out of school who are coming out of different visual arts programs in terms of how they might think about being an artist in the city in such an expensive city like this? I think it's a, it's a whole new game. I mean, with the internet and how that's working and all that stuff, I think there's a, a lot more choices about how you put yourself out there than there was before this. So I think it's really look at where you see yourself being in a couple of years or a few years and try to work towards that. Because, you know, I mean, try to find, you know, see where you want to go. Because I think that's the hardest thing for artists right now is to actually see what their career path could be. Do you think artist-run centers could do a better job of providing a space and a venue for, you know, recent graduates to have their first show? Or is it that things have evolved in such a way that we might need new types of spaces to create that? I mean, I think artist-run centers are doing that and have been doing that traditionally for a long time. I don't think that's new. I, yeah, I think that has gone on and it will continue to go on. I mean, there's a lot of artists on centers whose mandate is emerging artists, you know. Yeah. Glenn, my last question to you is, you know, I want you to mine your 35 plus years to finish off this interview with a good story from your mental archive. Oh, I don't know what that would look like. Should have told me that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Good story from my mental archive. I think I'll tell a story about when I first met Lawrence. It was one of the earliest times. Like I met Lawrence, we were living in the same building and didn't know each other. And then somebody, a mutual friend introduced us. And so we would have coffee from times to times. And I remember one time he went hunting 
and he was gone hunting for two weeks. And I come back and I went through the back of the building and I saw the lights were on in his apartment. So I thought, oh, he's home finally. So I went up and on my way to my apartment, I went in and knocked on the door. And then I hear Lawrence scream, come in. And so I walk in and I go into the kitchen and they're in the dining room. On the dining room table, he's got laid down this big piece of plastic tarp and he's slaughtering a moose. <laughs> There's like blood everywhere. <laughs> it looks like a serial killer has gone crazy in this apartment. It was it was one of the most amazing moments and eyefuls I ever saw. It was just like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's harsh. Not that I've never seen a moose being slaughtered, but not an apartment. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Anyway. That's I hope he makes a good boost story. too. Thanks so much for joining us on Below the Radar, Glenn. Okay, thank you very much. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Glenn Altine. You can find links to learn more about Grant Gallery and the Blue Cabin Floating Artist Residency in the show notes below. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.